In the course of the 16th century, successive English regimes tried with more or less vigour to persuade their subjects to take up a series of practices and beliefs first forged elsewhere in Europe. Some subjects ran ahead of the king or queen, and some at least responded with enthusiasm, while others met change with reluctance or even resistance. The new ideas, sometimes confronted, sometimes built upon, sometimes blended with pre-existent English traditions. The process worked unevenly in different regions, in town and countryside, under the sway of different local leaders. The result was a variegated pattern of hybrids, not quite the same anywhere in England or Wales or amongst the English in Ireland, and nowhere quite like the European archetypes. It's probably most fruitfully investigated one or two communities at a time, to see how a village in Devon might differ from the metropolis of London, or a coastal town in Yorkshire from one inland. Now this might pass as an account of the Reformation, but my aim in this podcast, which replaces the recording of my second Ford lecture, which has unfortunately been lost, is to see how well it fits the adoption by English communities of the military norms of Renaissance Europe. For the Gospel, read Gunpowder. For Lollardy, read The Longbow. For metrical psalters and books of common prayer, read Arquebuses and All Main Rivets. For London, as the powerhouse of preaching and Protestant printing, read London as the centre of arms imports and the stage for showpiece musters. For the Elizabethan Church of England, demonstrably ramshackle, yet surprisingly successful in creating a Protestant nation, if not a nation of Protestants, then tested to destruction by Laudianism and Puritan revolt, read the Elizabethan military fiscal system, demonstrably ramshackle, yet surprisingly successful in fighting off Spain and subduing Ireland, then tested to destruction by the Thirty Years' War and the Scottish Revolution. To focus on communities is particularly appropriate because the primary structures of English military organisation were, as Jeremy Goring showed 60 years ago, in transition in the mid-16th century from what he called a quasi-feudal to a national basis. Armies, composed of contingents recruited by individual noblemen and gentlemen from their servants, tenants and friends, were superseded from the 1540s by forces made up of county contingents levied by commissioners informed by regular musters of men of military age from every parish. Under both systems, individuals were required to possess and use arms and armour appropriate to their wealth. But where under the first system individual holdings were, as we shall see next week, supplemented by those of recruiting captains, under the second system township arms, those supplied by parishes, became increasingly important. And while the transition from quasi-feudal to national was, as Goring recognised, a messy one, as lords continued to be called upon to raise retinues for expeditions for some years after the first dispatch of county levies for overseas service, it also left towns of any size and degree of administrative independence in an anomalous position. In the quasi-feudal system, they were treated like lords, asked to raise and equip contingents appropriate to their size. In the national system, they struggled to be treated like counties, to muster their own men at the command of central government without the interference of county commissioners 
drawn from the neighbouring gentry. Looking at parishes and towns then should give us an instructive picture of military change in the England of Henry and his children. The first question to ask is how much military demands registered in local affairs. Let's examine first a sample of 147 sets of church wardens accounts taken from all but five English counties. They represent, of course, only a small portion of the 9,000 or so parishes in England, but they range between quarters of great cities, such as London, York and Bristol, prosperous small towns like Ashburton in Devon or Melton Mowbray in Leicestershire, where the church wardens might spend 20 or 30 pounds a year, and small villages, such as Great Packington in Warwickshire, where the church's annual income was around one pound. Until the 1540s, few of them spent much on warfare, especially if we exclude marginal military expenses, like repair of the local archery butts, or the purchase of military material for peaceful purposes, bowstrings to work the church clock, armour for plays, or gunpowder to spice up Morris dancing. Although each village and hamlet was supposed, according to a proclamation of 1509, to equip at common expense at least one able man to serve the king, orders for musters between 1492 and 1532 did not mention communal arms, and the military surveys of 1522 recorded them rarely, and more often for small towns like Dudley or Newport Pagnell than for villages. Already by the musters of 1539, things were changing, as commissioners began to command townships to obtain communal equipment for one or more soldiers. The Herefordshire commissioners appreciated those who had done their bit, Ledbury, who have in common six pair of harness, or Eastner, who have four pair of harness in a readiness in the church. Bedfordshire was tougher, with fines of two pounds for each parish that did not get its armour by Easter. By the next round of general musters in 1542, townships in some counties were routinely kitting out soldiers to serve in the retinues of local lords. In Shropshire, for example, Patton, Middleton and Little Wenlock had equipped men to serve with the Earl of Shrewsbury, Whittingslow to serve with the Earl of Arundel, and Tugford with Sir John Talbot. In the 1540s, the proportion of parishes recording military payments rose from less than one in ten to nearly a quarter. This is a minimum figure, as accounts often don't survive or don't contain sufficient detail for every year, and because, as debates between historians of the later medieval parish have shown us, parish finances worked in such complex ways that it's hard to use church wardens' accounts to show the totality of corporate expenditure. The change reached down to quite small communities, such as Marston, then two miles outside Oxford, and Great Hallingbury, some 20 miles north of our founder, the Reverend James Ford's parish of Navestock, Essex. The incidence of military spending increased further from the 1550s to the 1570s, an effect more noticeable if we disregard the parishes situated in the hundred largest towns, where expenditure was often coordinated through the more elaborate structures of civic government. By the 1560s, parishes like Tilney All Saints in Norfolk and Wayhill in Hampshire, which had never done so before, were buying armour and sending out soldiers. Parish stocks of arms appeared with increasing frequency in the muster lists of the 1540s and regularly in those of 1569. Parishes found different means to meet the new demands placed upon them. First, they spent their cash reserves, 
In the 1540s, Bardwell in Suffolk slid deep into deficit before a narrow recovery, and Hawley in Surrey suffered a gentler but equally clear erosion. Next, many diverted income previously intended for what were coming to be seen as superstitious purposes. At Chagford on Dartmoor, the store of St Catherine the Virgin was used to subsidise purchases of armour from 1542 to 3. And in the hard-pressed years that followed, St Michael's store and Our Lady's store, run by its female wardens, also paid military costs. The most illustrious endowments were not safe. At Luton, the fraternity of the Holy and Undivided Trinity and Blessed Virgin Mary, which had numbered among its members Edward IV, Henry VII and Henry VIII himself, had to produce nine shillings and sixpence for armour and two shillings and sixpence cash in hand for a soldier in 1545-6. to six. And the Marian Restoration could not put the clock back. At Leverington in Cambridgeshire in 1557, 26 shillings and 8 pence had to be taken out of the ploughlight money for setting forth soldiers. When such expedients did not suffice, parishes had to sell their goods or find new income. Sales were an attractive option at a time when Henry might well confiscate parochial wealth, as the first Edwardian inventories of church goods taken in 1547 show. Of 144 Suffolk churches for which returns survive, 68, nearly half, had in the past four years sold crosses, copes, chalices, censers, candlesticks, basins, pyxes and paxes to meet military expenses, great or small. The records for Essex and Norfolk are less comprehensive, but show that parishes there, 28 of them in Norfolk alone, were making similar decisions. Counties inland may have felt less pressure but half a dozen Surrey, Lincolnshire and Yorkshire parishes show that turning pixies into pikestaffs was not merely an East Anglian habit. An alternative to sales was to broaden the remit of the funds held in some parishes since the 1470s to help poorer residents pay their share of parliamentary taxes. The 15 penny land used at Eltham in Kent to cover the costs of cleaning parish armour sounds like such a fund and lands in fief to the town's use at Burton-on-Trent, Bury St Edmunds and Melton Mowbray, and a salt coat maintained by the Lincolnshire Fenland villages of Gedney and Moulton was similarly used to cover military charges. From this, it was a short step to levying local military rates. In Lancashire, it was already established practice in the 1540s for townships to choose four honest men to assess a rate on their neighbours to equip men sent to the borders, and to enforce payment by distraining animals. Rates came in in 1557-8 at Moorbath in Devon and Yatton in Somerset, and by the end of the 1560s, Chagford, Crediton and many London parishes had joined them. Boroughs had been coping with military expenditure and administration for a lot longer than parishes. In our period, we should remind ourselves, a number, Exeter, London, Norwich, York, faced the ultimate test of a rebel siege. But it was not just frontline towns that spent on war. A sample of borough accounts, or order books, drawn from 61 towns located in 28 English and Welsh counties, shows that all of them incurred military expenses at some point in our period, and many of them throughout it. They included not only large, rich towns, 14 of the 61 might be reckoned among the largest 20 in England, 17 more in the largest hundred, and three others in the hundred richest, if not the hundred largest. 
but also places with a few hundred inhabitants like Bridport, Chippenham and New Romney and even such minnows as Fordwich. Though the range of military costs boroughs had to meet was wider than that of parishes, most of their expenditure also went to clothe and equip soldiers. They had levied men for royal armies through the Wars of the Roses and were then built into Henry VII's national retinue system, which we shall explore more next week, by which he licensed towns, like individual noblemen and gentlemen, to retain men to serve him. Colchester, Coventry, Henley and Winchester all prepared men under this scheme, and other towns designated large contingents to serve under councillors trusted by the king. In successive wars, different towns faced different demands. It was all very well for a place like Henley, which seems always to have been asked for four men. Larger towns felt constantly under pressure to find too many soldiers too often. Cambridge was specific, sending two men to court to get relief of eight archers, parcel of twenty, charged for the town of Cambridge. York was eloquent, complaining that under pressure of the garrison war in Scotland, it was being asked for soldiers much above the number that the said city in ancient time was wanted to find, when that it was a city in great riches and prosperity. Others were practical. Dover bought dinner for John Coppledyke, deputy to the Lord Warden of the Sink Ports, to be good friends to the town, to ease us that we were not much charged to find soldiers. York paid Sir Oswald Wilstrop £10 in gold for help in easing the importable charges that is like to happen in setting forth of men. Hull was more devious still, leaving out half the men who appeared at its 1539 musters when it certified its military strength to the Crown. Nonetheless, civic pride wished soldiers to represent their towns well. Some care was taken in choosing men, and London put badges of swords on the jackets of its troops, Leicester sink foils, Shrewsbury leopards' faces, and Canterbury, where James Ford was born and went to school, Cornish chuffs. York's men marched out under a banner of white silk with gold leopards, and smaller places imitated such grandeur. Faversham spent nearly three pounds on an ensign to flutter at the head of its company in 1558. Farewell breakfasts, meals and drinks were commonplace, and Ludlow even bought its soldiers, countermanded from the attempt to rescue Calais in 1558, drinks at Stretton on the way home, because it rained. Equally practically, in 1544, Malden bought its soldiers a nightcap each, and gave them all a short haircut before they set out. Some believed in an even bigger send-off. Shrewsbury hired players to entertain its men, before they left in 1547-8. Norwich and York were more sententiously inclined. In 1497, the mayor of Norwich addressed the town contingent as they sat on horseback, ready to depart. Sirs, ye that be soldiers, he began, I charge you in the king's our sovereign lord's name that ye keep governance amongst you by the way, and that ye be ruled and governed by Thomas Large, your captain assigned unto you, he being present Chamberlain of this city. He went on to tell Large to imprison and replace any man who made any phrase, stirs or variances with his fellowship. They did at least then get a drink at the Guildhall door and two shillings each in spending money. At York in 1542, the mayor gathered the troops at the Magdalen Chapel on the city boundary. 
He told their captains well and truly to serve the king's majesty in that journey and lovingly to entreat all the said soldiers and truly to pay them their wages. So far, so good. But he also pointed out that the men were not to depart without especial license by writing upon pain of the law, the which is death. Perhaps a little shaken, they too got extra money in reward to comfort them at their departing. Towns needed to hold musters to know what men they could raise. Dover and York held them periodically under Henry VII and on into the 1520s, and an even earlier muster book survives for Bridport. In the 1540s and 1550s, ports like Southampton and Great Yarmouth compiled muster books with detailed provisions showing how the men of the town would be organised to resist attack. Yet the quickening national pace of musters did affect towns. The great effort of 1539 prompted Guildford to sort out its provision of armour, and Winchester to clean its armour, rehead its arrows, and compile a substantial book recording its soldiers. Really big musters were spectacles that stuck in the memory. What one livery company called the Great Muster made by the citizens of London in 1539 was such a sight that business was postponed in the House of Lords so the peers could watch. Town accounts show the frequency of musters, especially at times of crisis. Three times in 1557-8 at Faversham, every year between 1544 and 1547 at Ludlow, and sometimes reveal the practicalities. At Cambridge there was much copying out of instructions and articles. Forms, trables and trestles had to be carried out onto Jesus Green or St Thomas's Lays, and the mayor and aldermen treated themselves to dinner at the Dolphin or the mayor's house afterwards. Whether equipped by parishes or boroughs, soldiers had to have appropriate gear. At the start of our period, the standard equipment of English infantrymen consisted of a helmet, usually a sallet, some body armour, either a stuffed leather jack or a more expensive brigandine of fabric sewn with metal plates, a sword and dagger, sometimes a buckler, a small round shield, and either a bow or a bill, a pole weapon with a point, a spike and a sharp blade. When Henley sent its men to serve Henry VII, they had a characteristic mixture of bows, bills, jacks, brigandines, sallets and bits and pieces of male armour. In 1513, the constables at Ramsey in Huntingdonshire had two jacks, two breastplates, two sallets, two bucklers, two bills, two swords, one dagger, and assorted mail and plate armour for the body and arms, standards, gussets, sleeves, splints, and a mail apron. Such equipment remained commonplace into the 1540s and sometimes beyond, but new weapons and stronger and more standardised defences steadily penetrated local stores. New in Henry's First French War were all main rivets, mass-produced South German plate body armours. The king himself ordered 2,000 of them in 1512, and his subjects soon began to catch up. At Exeter, most of the armour produced by individuals and then added to the city's stores in 1512-13 consisted of brigandines, sallets and splints. But John Callwoodley, schoolmaster, produced a pair of all main rivets, and the landlord of the Bear had one too. In the 1520s and 30s, all main rivets appeared in large southern towns, and by the 1540s they were at Barnstaple, Wilton and York. By the 1550s, even the church wardens at Marston were stocking up with them, but just as they did so, best practice was moving on. 
In the 1560s, pikemen were expected to have the heavier and more expensive corslets. They duly appeared, and much faster than all main rivets had done. At Bury St Edmunds, Lyme Regis and Winchester, by 1564 for example, by 1570 even at Cratfield and Ludlow. With corslets came the new helmet styles of the mid-century, burgonets or headpieces and morions. Armour was expensive, six shillings to thirteen shillings and fourpence for a set of all main rivets in the 1520s or 30s, up to one pound ten shillings for a corslet in the 1560s, and it needed looking after. As York's councillors put it in 1561, it cannot but decay without diligent scouring and repairing, and parish and borough accounts are full of payments for scouring armour with sand and oiling it to prevent rust, and renewing the harness nails, leather straps and cloth points with which it was held together. The London pewterers invested in a great block with feet to scour harness, and many other companies, parishes and boroughs set up frames, hooks or nails to hang their armour on, presses or chests to keep it in, or dedicated armoury chambers, grander or lesser versions of the remarkable survival at Mendlesham in Suffolk. Keeping it in good condition was all very well, but sending troops out with it ran the risk it might never come back. In 1542, York instructed its returning soldiers to hand their equipment in to their parish constable, or pay compensation. In 1545, Ipswich had to ask Sir Thomas Tyrrell to be good master for our, our, our harness, or else it had been gone. In 1554 and 1569, the London cloth workers issued careful instructions that their men could keep any clothes bought for them to serve in, but must hand in their armour. Perhaps more effectively, the Skinners in 1554 paid nine shillings to seven men that brought home their harness. The ultimate fear was that the community might not be able to defend itself. York worried in 1548 that the Crown's demands were so insistent that they might leave the city desolate of armour for defence of the same. Dover ordered in 1523 that no one who owned armour or weapons should sell them to anyone outside the town, so that they might remain in Dover for the defence of the town and the realm. What they feared was the situation Falsham in Norfolk bemoaned in 1547, that by occasion of the King's Majesty's wars we have forborne out of our town twenty men's harnesses, so that we remain at this time destitute, not only for the maintaining of His Grace's wars, but also for the defence of our own persons. Soldiers needed weapons as well as armour. From the rise of the Swiss infantry and their Lundsknecht opponents in the 1470s and 1480s, pikes were the characteristic weapon of massed infantry formations on European battlefields. The pike came into England rapidly enough. OED has a mention in 1487, but it took a lot longer to displace the bill. Pikes were in use in London's summer marching watches by 1519, and at the great London muster of 1539, and for a London muster before the Queen in 1558, the livery companies were expected to provide four pikemen for every bill. It was easy for the Londoners. The Tower of London held stocks of modern equipment bought in bulk by the Crown, and the companies could buy or hire from there. Elsewhere, pikes spread at a very uneven rate. Dover had them in the 1520s and Plymouth in the 1540s, but not till the 1550s did they appear at Rye, Southampton and Worcester. Central government urged local authorities on, but their calls fell on deaf ears. 
1548, the York Muster Commissioners were told to look for men meet to handle the pike, but they returned only billmen and archers then and throughout the 1550s, catching up with the pike, like most other places, only in the 1560s. With pikes went shot. Effective handheld firearms first appeared in Europe in the later 15th century and made a significant impact on the battlefield from the 1520s. In England, the government stockpiled them from Edward IV's reign at Calais and in the Tower, but at first they spread only as far as the larger towns, Dover and London in the 1520s, Winchester, Worcester and Yarmouth by the 1550s. Elsewhere, the government had to set itself a training mission. York, which had returned only eight gunners with harquebuts and handguns at its February 1548 musters, was asked that October to find 50 men, such as be unmarried and willing to learn to shoot in a hackbutt, and was reportedly asked for handgunners thereafter. By 1564, the city had absorbed the message sufficiently well that it created a forerunner of the trained band system envisaged in the 1570s, just as towns developed poor relief systems ahead of the national provision made by the poor laws, naming pikemen, arquebusiers and billmen or halberdiers who were to have quarterly mustering and teaching to use their said weapons at the Old Bailey in the city and Toft Green outside it. By Elizabeth's reign, many other towns were fielding arquebuses, ports like Boston, Bristol or Liverpool, and inland towns like Bury St Edmunds and Cambridge. But the government, annoying as ever, was moving beyond the arquebus to demand more modern weapons, such as the sophisticated caliver, the long-barrelled courier and the short-barrelled dag. After 1560, couriers and dags appeared at Winchester and Cambridge, but the caliver was commonest, reaching Southampton and Ashburton, Cambridge and Louth by 1572. By that time, too, gunpowder weapons were at last spreading to rural parish armouries. To defend themselves effectively, large towns also needed bigger guns. Across our period, these were changing in manufacture and deployment. Early on, most were of forged iron construction, loaded at the breech with removable chambers and were fired from fixed positions. Wheeled guns came in from the mid-15th century and cast guns of bronze without chambers rather later, as in the famous train with which the French invaded Italy in 1494. Around 1500, many larger English towns had guns, but they were not at the forefront of technological advance. In the 1480s and 90s, Rye had various guns with chambers that could serve equally well on ship or on land, attached to posts seated in holes in the ground, priced in shillings rather than pounds. York's guns in 1511 were smallish pieces with chambers, assigned two or three to each city gate. By then, coastal towns were more ambitious. Plymouth, Dover and Rye all built up their stocks of guns over Henry VII's reign and into the next, and each had what they called great guns, usually on wheels, by 1512. Southampton even had a gun with a name, as great princes did, Thomas with the beard, plus a long serpentine, a short serpentine, guns on carts, and organs, guns with multiple barrels. How big a great gun was is, of course, hard to say, but the chamber for Thomas with the beard weighed 200 pounds, so the whole gun might have weighed 600 to 1,000 pounds, the size of a large serpentine. And in 1512, Great Yarmouth was aiming to make guns nine feet long and able to shoot a mile, though still with chambers. 
Cast bronze guns came in from the 1510s for ambitious or exposed places like Norwich, Southampton and Plymouth, but the prices were painful. £5 each for wheeled slings at Norwich, up to £7.10 shillings each at Southampton, more than £50 for six bronze falconets at Norwich in 1545. Given the cost, it's no surprise that the change to cast guns was slow. Many of Plymouth's, Southampton's and Great Yarmouth's guns had chambers into the 1540s, and Dover had guns with chambers on its bulwarks as late as 1555. Meanwhile, projectiles were gradually developing from stone to metal. In 1482-3, Southampton invested in picking hammers for gun stones, and two tonnes of stone to use them on, and it went on using gun stones into the 1520s. Plymouth still made shot from stone from Stadden on the moors south of the town in the 1510s. It had begun to make lead and iron shot in the 1480s, but only in the 1540s did iron completely win out. Small anti-personnel guns, meanwhile, fired lead pellets, like those Southampton bought in 1483-4, or iron pellets or dice, like those Dover, Plymouth and Southampton were making in the 1510s and 20s. On the coast, much smaller communities kept up with firearm technology. After the French landing of 1545, the captain of the Isle of Wight ordered each parish to procure a modern falconet of bronze and iron, and keep it in a gun house attached to the parish church. The guns made for Carisbrick and Braiding still survive, dated 1549 and inscribed with the names of the makers, John and Robert Owen, the King's gun makers, and the name of the parish for which each was made, while some of the gun houses lasted into the 19th century. In the 1540s, Eastbourne too was buying cast iron guns, two sakers and three robinets, while Suffolk coastal parishes from north to south, Lowestoft, Kirkley, Kessingland, North Hales, Eastern Bavance, Southwold, Wolberswick, Leiston and Alderborough spent money on guns and ammunition. Harwich's response to the succession crisis of 1553 shows the locals' ready familiarity with guns, both iron and bronze, and the technique for making hail shot sewn up in canvas pokes with a sail needle. Ports also made increasing administrative provision for their guns. Rye had a gun garden and Great Yarmouth appointed four townsmen as masters of its ordnance in 1543 and turns its hospital into a gunnery store in 1551. Guns needed powder, and everywhere purchases mounted. Plymouth worked its way up from £39 in 1496-7 to a massive £1,009, 10 barrels, in 1544, and Southampton's purchases expanded at a similar rate. The spread of handguns meant that even those merely equipping infantrymen needed powder. By 1569, a single London company, the Drapers, were laying in £60 at a time. Powder was hard to keep in good condition, and needed restoration if it decayed or absorbed water. In 1486-7, Dover had to dry its gunpowder, and in 1501-2, Plymouth bought three pounds of saltpetre and threepence worth of vinegar to mend the gunpowder. London's solution was more drastic, ordering its gunpowder sold off when peace came in 1514, for so much as the said powder daily asketh great charge in the keeping thereof. Guns needed gunners, and York employed one by the 1470s, Plymouth by the 1490s, Southampton by the 1510s, and Rye by the 1520s. All these were in the top 50 towns, 
but by the 1550s Poole had a gunner, and by that time Dover was employing them for individual bulwarks. At a time of technological change, England suffered a skills shortage. It was met with the time-honoured expedient of selective immigration, though the magic words Tier 2 visa had yet to be invented. Southampton had John Dutchman and John Fonderson working on gunpowder and gunstones in the 1470s and 80s. Dover paid two Dutchmen for mending its gunpowder in 1495-6, to and by 1512 Southampton had a whole team of foreign gunners. Dierick Gunner and Balthazar Gunner were presumably Dutch or German, and Conrad Schmidt, Jonker Schaff, Christopher van Gratis and Marcus Strausbrer were Swiss. Only from the 1520s did Southampton manage to recruit more local-sounding gunners like Roger Cobley, Richard Netley and John Norton. Whatever their origins, gunners needed to practice. At Plymouth in the 1540s, empty barrels were used as boys to shoot at in the harbour, and Southampton may have done something similar when they experimented to see how far our guns would shoot. However hard they tried, it was hard for towns to keep up with the growing sophistication and expense of top-of-the-range artillery. Fortunately, the Crown, which had no desire to see the French or Spanish occupy a major port, offered a solution by loaning guns from the royal stores. In 1545, Great Yarmouth took delivery of a powerful suite of bronze guns, mounted on wheeled carriages and firing iron shot, two demi-cannons, one culverin and two sakers. By 1547, Poole had a demi-culverin and an iron saker from the royal stores at Portsmouth and a bronze culverin from the Tower of London. In 1569, Rye acknowledged receipt of a major stock of guns from the Ordnance Office. One demi-cannon, two culverins, eleven sakers, three minions, four falcons, three port pieces and four fowlers. In the process, the masters of the Ordnance Office became from the 1520s important contacts for towns concerned to keep their guns up to scratch. Sir William Skevington and Sir Christopher Morris for Dover and Hull, Sir Thomas Seymour at Great Yarmouth. There was less help for communities equipping troops to meet the intensifying demands of the Crown for more standardised and modern equipment. They were left at the mercy of captains or commissioners who might reject the armour or weapons with which they supplied their men. Sheffield turned out a motley collection of bows, bills, jacks, splints, skulls and sallets to confront the Northern Earls, until the Queen's commissioners ordered substantial payments to equip one man with a corslet and pike and another with an arquebus and morion. All too often, the captain judging the equipment turned out to be conveniently able to supply replacements at a price that suited him. Sir Robert Constable wanted £33, six shillings and eightpence from York in 1548 to arm their 50 trainee hackbutters to his satisfaction. Between 1558 and 1562, Ludlow spent nearly a quarter of the costs of setting forth eight men on buying equipment from the captain. Berry St Edmunds paid the captain of their men several shillings more than the going rate for a corslet and two arquebuses, and the London carpenters paid more than a third of the costs of the men they sent to Le Havre to Captain Vaughan for armour, jerkins and weapons. Other requirements were easier and perhaps more enjoyable to meet. Effective pike-and-shot warfare required soldiers to march in formation, and the best help to that was the beat of a drum, a practice closely associated with the Landsknechts. In his English-French Dictionary of 1530, John Paulsgrave included the definition drumslade, such as all mains use in war. The London Drapers' Company 
had six drummers in the Marching Watch in 1526. In the Great City Muster, of 1539, the Londoners marched with drum slades playing afore them all the way. And for the Marching Watch in 1541, the drapers hired pikes and guns, drummers and flute players, eight experts to brandish two-handed swords, and one Ninny and Sanderson to play with a flag, while the company captains were decked out in doublets, slops and hose after the all-main fashion. The Londoners, though amateurs, wanted to do things in style, much like the modern banker commuting in racing bike and lycra. From London drumming spread ever onwards, as drums were bought, repaired, repainted and played at musters. By 1558 they'd reached Bridport, Faversham and Plymouth. By 1573 Bodmin and even Little Fordwich. Large-scale warfare placed various other demands on towns. Especially earlier in the period, the Crown often asked for horses to carry soldiers, even if they were to fight on foot. A horse cost more than a set of infantry armour, around a pound in the 1530s, up to two pounds in the 1540s. Occasionally, towns were even asked to equip light horsemen, an expensive business which could cost more than four pounds each. Wheeled cannon needed horses to draw them. Siege warfare demanded large labour forces, and from the 1540s towns and parishes were asked to levy pioneers or workmen, as well as troops. Carts were needed for munitions and victuals, and Melton Mowbray, Beverley and York supplied carts, horses and carters for the Scottish wars of the 1540s and 50s. Ports were called on for ships, the sink ports in particular performing ship service whenever the king or his army needed transporting to France. Everywhere in Europe, new fortifications, better proof against siege artillery, and better able to harness the defensive potential of guns, large and small, were the sign of the gunpowder revolution, replacing or supplementing the high, thin, medieval walls still kept in repair by many English towns. In England, the new fortification was most obvious in Henry's large concentric coastal forts, built in stone, paid for by the crown, often with the profits of the dissolution of the monasteries, and much criticised since for their use of rounded walls rather than the angled bastions of the Tras Italienne, which would shortly become the European norm and would be implemented at Berwick in 1558-70. But just as evident to contemporaries were smaller and less solid fortifications, common enough that Thomas Lever could use blockhouses and bulwarks made and kept of the king's faithful subjects for the safeguard of this realm as an illustration in a sermon of 1551 for the offices in church and state which, like the blockhouses, should be manned by faithful men. Invasion scares like those of 1539, 1545-1556-8-1569 prompted the crown to send commissioners round the coast inspecting fortifications. Those most in the front line had started to fortify themselves long before. From the 1470s to the 1520s, Plymouth, Southampton, Dover and Poole were building bulwarks, blockhouses and gun platforms of earth and timber and sometimes of brick and stone. But the projects of the 1540s to 1560s were different in scale because of the, of the large quantities of earth that needed to be moved for the style of cannon-proof fortifications the English were building at the same time at Eyemouth and other sites in Scotland. The solution was forced labour by the citizens. In 1539, the townsfolk of Harwich built new trenches and bulwarks, and the commissioners noted approvingly that women and children joined in the digging. 
In 1545, Great Yarmouth, which already had three bulwarks, built an earth rampart half a mile long behind its medieval walls. That time, the workforce was provided by the town councillors, each sending one or two men. But in January 1558, with the shock of the fall of Calais, the entire population was ordered to work on the ramparts with shovels, baskets and barrows on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays. In 1569, the townsfolk set to again, constructing an earth artillery platform 222 feet long and 32 feet wide. The future town clerk and civic historian Henry Manship recalled that he was, with other, the then grammar scholars of Yarmouth, by the space of three days, a young labourer, or rather loiterer amongst them, more willing to help to carry a maund of earth in my hand than a satchel of books on my shoulder. Rye in 1545 and Dover in 1557 similarly set their inhabitants to work to improve their fortifications. Coastal bulwarks were a more general charge. Commissioners were instructed in 1544 to view the coast and cause the old trenches, bulwarks of earth and such like defences to be prepared or to be made new with the help of the country. In Norfolk, Weybourne Hope was seen as a prime invasion site with easy access from deep water. It was defended by a bulwark to which parishes up to 10 miles inland contributed. Similar contributions were levied across Suffolk, Devon and Lincolnshire, so that in 1545-6 Plymouth, for example, received £13 six shillings and eightpence in ready money given by the country towards the maintenance of our bulwarks and ordnance, while Moorbath paid towards bulwarks at Seaton, some 40 miles away. Warning beacons were even more widespread than bulwarks, 23 sets of church wardens in eight counties contributing to them. They had long been in use, but both the structures themselves and the plans for their use needed to be kept in shape. The network, much admired by the French ambassador in 1539, allowed news of invasion to be spread along sight lines drawn for Kent by William Lambard in his perambulation of 1596. There were beacons along the coast, funded both by ports and by inland parishes, and on high ground all across the country, including the far north, where the system was used to warn of major incursions by the Scots. Instructions issued in 1546, and again ten years later, required that wise and vigilant persons, or honest householders, be appointed to tend the beacons. They prescribed signalling routines for firing one, two or three beacons at different points for dangers of different severity, and appropriate responses to the sight of the beacons on fire, suggesting that the gentry and other honest and sober men should be ready to take charge so that the people should not wander up and down amazed. Different locations called forth different practicalities. At Plymouth and Launceston, the beacons burnt furs, whereas Dover's signal fires used wood. York's Bilborough beacon used an iron brandrith, or three-legged brazier, and tar barrels, apparently on a wooden structure which needed an expert carpenter to keep it in repair. Watching the beacons must have been cold work, and shelters were built for the watchmen. Launceston put up a beacon house in 1542-3, and at Cocaine Hatley in Bedfordshire in February 1556, an unnamed beggar girl slept the night in the beacon house before a fatal fall from a windmill. The beacon watch was only the most prominent part of a gamut of wartime watching. Ports watched the sea for suspicious shipping, sometimes with paid watchmen or rotors of townsfolk posted at coastal vantage points, Rame Head, Flamborough, Bridlington Quay, sometimes by sending out boats as far as the French coast. 
In the commotion time of 1549, there was watching in the most unlikely places. Cambridge sent out Edward Loft as a scout watch to Thetford. English and Welsh towns generally did not have to put up with large garrisons, but when they did, the experience could be stressful. The townsfolk of Bimaris complained that Sir Roland Vielville's soldiers sometimes sallied out from the castle to attack them, and once trained the castle's loaded guns on the town. Hull too had its troubles, but the worst problems came at Portsmouth. As its importance as a naval base grew, it was given large wartime garrisons, more than 500 men in autumn 1513, but it was Sir Adrian Poynings, its governor in the 1560s, who let things get out of hand. His men, sometimes acting in armed bands 40 strong, repeatedly arrested and imprisoned civic officers as they tried to go about their business, freed malefactors from custody, and expelled townsfolk from their houses. One man, asked by the mayor to return a prisoner, made a flip with his finger and thumb, saying, Tush for him. One ex-mayor stated in his will that he went in fear of my life from Sir Adrian Poynings, captain of Portsmouth, and his servants. Other encounters were more fleeting, but equally awkward. Southampton put guards on its gates to keep the soldiers out when the army came home in 1475. York and Rye had to lend soldiers money or buy them drinks to pacify them in 1481-2, and one Dover parish paid eightpence in Edward VI's reign for watching the church when the soldiers were in town. In the 1560s, the authorities at Bristol and Liverpool were hard put to it to pacify brawling between their citizens and soldiers bound for Ireland. There might be extra difficulties when the troops were foreign. York having to set prices carefully to avoid trouble when Germans passed through in the 1540s. One party were to be kept away from the local nightlife, expected to go to their beds and rest at nine of the clock at night. Sheer numbers were problem enough. With more than 3,000 soldiers in the city to face the Northern Rising in 1569, York had to resort to price setting again. When added to the more usual charges, local military expenditure could have a serious impact on the finances of boroughs as of parishes, especially at a time of heavy national taxation to pay for war. As Ian Archer's calculations for London show, in the 1540s and 50s, national and local levies combined to place a greater burden on urban society in real terms than at any other point in the century. At a front-line town like Rye, we can see even more vividly the importance of military expenditure in the town's budget, and the way the burden increased in the 1540s and 50s. As in parishes, cash reserves went first. Poole's borough finances took hit after hit from the 1490s to the 1540s, building up reserves in peacetime, only to empty away in war. At London, two years of war from 1544 to 1546 took the blacksmith's company from 17 shillings and sixpence in hand to £7.18 shillings in debt. Burdens had to be passed on to the citizenry, but towns chose to do it in different ways. Some pushed them downwards onto wards, parishes or trade guilds. Some organised things centrally, but preferred individuals to contribute in kind. In 1522, Faversham resolved that the mayor should always have three sets of armour in his house, each jurat two, and each of the 24, the larger town council, one. In 1548, Norwich even insisted that each widow of a city JP should keep armour for two men, and each widow of an alderman, one. Contributions might be more multifarious. 
At Exeter in 1512 to 14, citizens were allowed to pay money or contribute arms, armour or services. The making up of six or eight coats, six bows from a bowyer, six swords from a furbisher, ten hats from a hat maker. Under pressure, boroughs dug deep, often at the, at the expense of their churches in a microcosm of the King's Reformation. In the 1540s, Plymouth sold church plate and King's Lynn church bells to buy munitions, and Great Yarmouth spent the wealth of its Guild of Our Lady over the Haven on the town's defences. In 1548, the mayor and borough of Wilton recorded their unanimous assent that as the inhabitants of the same borough are poor and not able to bear the charges, the money of the church box of every church within the same borough shall to the sum of six pounds thirteen shillings and fourpence in the whole go towards the maintenance of the king's wars. When such expedients ran out, general rating was the only answer, and at least 18 of our towns introduced it. Some costs had to be met in cash, pools charges for the upkeep and manning of Brownsea Castle, for example, and regular rating made sense. Others mixed rates with demands on individuals, or like Leicester, began by rating town councillors and turned at length to a general rate. Several historians have seen the 16th century as an important period in the development of the structures and practices of government in English parishes and boroughs, and of their integration into a more effective English state. But in their analyses, the wars of Henry VIII have not loomed large. While Bayard Cumin and Robert Titler assert the importance of the period from the 1530s to the 1560s as what Cumin calls an absolutely crucial stage in the absorption of the parish into the wider Tudor state, and Titler a turning point in the history of English urban society, it's the changes of the Reformation that they emphasise. For Steve Hindle, it was the Elizabethan poor laws above all that made the parish to an unprecedented extent a local expression of state power, though he gives a supporting role to the Militia Act of 1558. Of course, the Reformation and the Poor Laws were important, but it is striking how many of the changes noted by these scholars were paralleled or even anticipated by the steps taken in response to the military demands of Henry and his successors. This was true not just of rating systems and the expropriation of church wealth, but also in questions of identity, bureaucracy and the distribution of power. Most towns dressing troops or warding off county muster commissioners asserted a corporate identity already well formed, but the terminology used by those making up church accounts betrays the ambiguities of institutional developments at a parish level. Was it in fact the ecclesiastical parish that was becoming the primary unit of military organisation in Henry's England, believably so, as Henry made himself supreme head and seemed set to merge church and state, or was it something else? At St Michael Cornhill, the accounts made clear that while the church wardens Sexton and Beadle took care of the armour kept in the church steeple under the guidance of the vestry, it was the armour belonging to the ward, to the city of London's Cornhill ward. Elsewhere, contemporaries were reaching for something like the later concept of the civil parish, but where in the southwest and much of the south communities spoke of their church or parish armour, in Hampshire it was the tithing armour, and from Essex to Lincolnshire and across to Leicestershire it was the towns or townships armour, even when, 
as at Melton Mowbray, it was kept in a locked press in the church vestry. The roles taken by different officers suggest similar ambiguities. Often it was the parish constable or constables, agents of the parish or township in its judicial and fiscal functions, who took charge of military funds and equipment or oversaw the setting out of soldiers. In some places, specialists seem to have emerged. John Newcombe, acting as conductor of Chagford's soldiers to their muster points, several years running. William at Tinwell, accounting repeatedly for military costs at Moorbath. Elsewhere, it was the church wardens, even the clergy, who took an active part. At St Michael Spurriergate in York, it was Sir Thomas Worrell, the stipendiary priest who conducted much of the parish's business, who handed over an assortment of arms and armour to four past and present church wardens in 1546. At Ashburton, the constable and tithing man escorted the soldiers to musters, but many other leading parishioners, including the church wardens, took part in military preparations. Warfare also generated paperwork. Large boroughs had the administrative resources to cope with military organisation, though they were still a fluster at times. In 1536, the London Coopers Company paid two men for seven days' work, running and going about at the warden's commandment to get everything organised. Smaller towns and parishes found that mustering men, rating taxpayers and buying armour meant, just like Reformation and Counter-Reformation, writing multiple bills, books and indentures. In 1557-8 alone, Yatton paid sixpence for the book to gather to set forth soldiers, and fourpence for a muster bill, while by 1568-9, Crediton was making three copies of its book for rating of armour and artillery. And as decisions had to be taken, so political power became concentrated in parish elites, just as urban oligarchies tightened to face new challenges. Hindle has written of a contraction of participation in parochial governance, in which what contemporaries called the best sort of the inhabitants rose by the early 17th century to dominate affairs in many parishes. Parish authorities, making controversial moves to fund warfare in the 1540s, were keen to stress that they acted with the consent of the parish, or the whole township, or the assent of the parishioners. But in some places, distinctions were already beginning to appear. Money was lent by a church warden to equip soldiers at St Michael's Spurriergate, as all our masters doth know. Large sales of plate to fund military expenditure were made at Woodbridge with the consent of divers and sundry of the honesty of the same town. War was shaping the parish and the borough alongside reformation and social change. Today we have considered Henry's subjects mostly in groups, but they also met the challenges of his wars as individuals, none more so than noblemen and gentlemen. For them, war offered unparalleled opportunities for glory, reward and promotion, but also that fate worse than death, dishonour. In January 1546, as the church wardens of Suffolk were selling off their plate to buy armour for his men, Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, was stumbling off the battlefield at Saint-Étienne outside Boulogne, his best captain slain and his men in flight, allegedly begging the gentlemen around him to run him through and make him forget the day. Next week we shall follow him and his kind into the King's Wars. <laughs>